0: Hey everyone, Christine here with my contribution to our third annual History for Halloween episode. I'm continuing my tradition of ghost themed stories with one that comes straight from the New York Times. That is, the New York Times from August 28th, 1927. So, imagine that it is almost 90 years ago, and you are settling down to read your daily news, and this is what you discover. In Pennsylvania, a farmer named W.J. Walker is at his wit's end. In fact, the article says that he was on the verge of nervous collapse, because he was being haunted in his own home, not just for days, but for years, by a ghost that very much wanted him to leave. What exactly caused him to reach the end of his tether after this long, I don't know, because it wasn't in the article, but desperate for relief, he went to the sheriff and a member of the state motor patrol and asked them to come to his house and figure out what the heck was going on. The two men agreed to help out the stressed walker, and they spent two nights sleeping in his farmhouse. Were they haunted during their stay? Well, This is what they recorded as having experienced. First, while they were sleeping, the very sheets they were sleeping upon were snatched from their beds. Then they witnessed, from their window, a white-clad figure vanish among the outbuildings. But they did not run away, despite these strange happenings. The next morning, things progressed. They found red fluid, which they described as resembling blood, all around the interior of the house, and it wrote out messages warning them to flee. Now, okay, that is crazy times, so no wonder Walker was in such a state and needed help. Could it be that, in fact, he was being haunted by a crazy, sheet-stealing ghost? Alas, no. But someone was out to get him one of the helpful officers noticed a striking resemblance between the stature of the white-clad ghost and a farmhand. So he interrogated this suspiciously familiar-heighted farmhand, and that resulted in a signed confession that he was pretending to be the ghost. But turns out it wasn't even him who was behind it. He said that he was hired for the job. Soon, Miss Velma Miller, a boarder at the farm, and Mrs. Walker, the wife of our haunting victim, were arrested. Why? Well, because Mrs. Walker was behind the haunting all the time. She hired the farmhand to help her in her quest to drive her husband from their home so that she could have control of the farm all to herself. She was nothing if not ingenious in her methods. However, take this as a warning, potential farmer-haunters disguise your farmhand accomplices better than Mrs. Walker, or you'll end up being the one in cuffs. Happy Halloween!
1: I'm Lucy, and my frightening footnote concerns the strange history of Oliver Cromwell's head. The history of Oliver Cromwell would be dramatic enough if it ended with his death, Adored as a righteous opponent of tyranny, or reviled as a regicide, he rose from moderately prosperous obscurity to become the most powerful man in Britain in the 17th century. A passionate Puritan member of Parliament under Charles I, Cromwell became General of the armies that opposed the King, and, after Charles' execution, Lord Protector of England, Ireland and Scotland. Controversial in his own day, Cromwell is so in ours. As contested are his legacy are the versions of the story about what happened to his head. Cromwell died a natural death. Surprisingly enough, in revolutionary times, he was given a state funeral and was ceremonially buried in Westminster Abbey. But there clarity ends. Cromwell's body was badly embalmed, so corpse and effigy traveled separately to the Abbey to end together in a strange doubling. After the restoration of the monarchy, his body was disinterred four days before it was punished as that of a traitor. This four-day sojourn of Cromwell's body has led to many claims that it was successfully rescued from its would-be humiliators. But the body known as that of Oliver Cromwell was ritually hung and then decapitated. The corpse's head was displayed on a pike on Westminster Hall, macabre enough, for 20 years until, the story goes, it was blown off by a gust of wind. The head was, in any case, retrieved by a guard who hid it in his chimney, as one does with the heads of executed notables. On his deathbed, he told his family about it, and from that point its history is fairly well documented. It travelled England as curiosity and sideshow, sold on numerous times to speculators and collectors. In 1875, two heads of Cromwell, this Wilkinson skull and one at the Ashmolean Museum, were evaluated by an archaeologist who decided that the Wilkinson head had a better claim. It remained in the Wilkinson family, occasionally being shown to house guests, as one does with the heads of executed notables, until in 1960 it was donated to Sydney Sussex College, Cambridge, where Cromwell had studied. Despite the many twists of the head's history, study of it suggests that it did indeed belong to Cromwell, renowned and infamous, who was given a state funeral and a posthumous execution. His head remains in an unmarked grave, and according to university legend, on certain nights, given the right fog or the right political circumstances, it haunts the halls.
2: Hi, this is Leslie, and I'm going to tell you a tale today that happened to my friend. Recently, my friend Neil was telling me about a strange experience he had in the theater district of Chicago. As Neil stood away from the crowd, waiting for a friend, he heard a small noise, like a child trying to get his attention. He described it to me as the law and order moment, where someone stumbles upon a person needing help. So he went into the alley, but he couldn't find anyone. There was a collection of rats, a terrible sight, to be sure, but no suffering child. Then he felt a hand touch his. It startled him, but as he looked down, he realized that no one was there. He looked around, nothing. He hastened his steps and returned to the pavement. Under the warmer glow of the city lights, Neil met his friend and described what had just happened. It gave him goosebumps to recount the very realistic cries for help and the small hand that seemed to reach out to him. Instead of teasing him, though, his friend gave him a knowing look. She told him about the Iroquois Theater fire. In 1903, just 30 years after the Chicago fire destroyed two-thirds of the city, the Iroquois Theater was built to withstand any fire risk. They even advertised their theater as absolutely fireproof and described precautions taken to prevent disaster. Sadly, most of those precautions were incomplete by opening night. On December 30th, a fire broke out during the second act. The crowd tried to flee but could not. Fire exits had not yet been built. Doors opened inward instead of outward, and the crush of the crowd prevented those doors from opening. Cheaper seats were sectioned off by fences, which kept patrons from escaping. Among those who perished were a large number of children. One survivor recalls looking out from the stage into the audience and being struck by the sheer number of children. As the fire raged on, students from the university building next door attempted to save children by creating a bridge of boards between their two buildings. Mothers encouraged their children to crawl across to safety, and some slipped and fell to their deaths into the alley below. Others died in the crush, and still more died from smoke inhalation and severe burns. All told, 602 people lost their lives that day, and the majority were children or mothers. Ever since that terrible day, when so many people suffered, visitors to this area of Chicago have reported hearing cries for help, sobs of fear, and even the brush of a small hand seeking their attention in the alley. Chicago's history is dotted by fires. Its ghosts keep the fires alive even today.
1: This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at HistoryFootnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.